All right, everyone, let's get started. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Fermin Barreto, who is uh, emergency medicine trained and uh, has functioned for years in the in our emergency department as the informal, or is it, I don't know if it's formal or not, but informal, at least, toxicologist that we all call frequently to uh, manage emergencies that the rest of us can't figure out. So uh, he did his uh, toxicology fellowship at NYU, which is uh, one of the best around, and we're lucky to have him here talk to us about uh, poisonings and, and how to identify and manage them in the ICU. So welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> all right, so looks like we got 50% down in the first couple rows and a couple other up there. So we'll... Uh, we're going to keep this uh, open forum. If you have questions, uh, if it's not even necessarily rated di directly to topic, please don't hesitate to ask. We're going to uh, work our way through three main topics. The general uh, discussion here was going to be about lethal po poisonings and how to best manage them. More specifically, uh, we're going to assess and man how to assess and manage the hyperthermic patient. Th this is the one time that they're actually not septic. These are going to be uh, the hyperthermia syndromes. We're also going to discuss briefly about the prognostic uh, indicators of acetaminophen-induced hepatotoxicity. So the ones that are the sickest are really the ones that head towards uh, the unit. And then finally, one of the cutting-edge new therapies, lipid emulsion therapy, is growing both in the critical care literature as well as the toxicology and emergency medicine. And it's something that I think all of us are going to start dealing with on a more frequent basis. And we're going to I sent out the three articles that cover each of these three objectives. I, I would take a note. I usually don't like sending out animal studies, but this is an animal study that I really do think uh, shows essentially that there are some unknown effects about lipid emulsion therapy that we may be able to take advantage of in our critically ill patients. So I want to start off actually in the beginning. Uh, when we talk about toxicology, we talk about toxidromes. You know, one of the nice things about the ICU, depending on the patient, is that they're intubated, right? They don't get to talk back to you. They're going to be quiet. Um, this uh, case study is going to bring out some of the toxidromes that you see. You have to adapt this to the unit, but this is a 15-year-old boy. It's actually a real patient I took care of up in Bel Air. Bizarre behavior in homeroom, and EMS was called. En route to the hospital, he had a generalized seizure and had a typical postictal period. And interestingly enough, there was a second patient in the same homeroom who actually started developing the same symptoms. And then there was kind of mini mass hysteria in the homeroom thinking that there was, you know, a uh, carbon monoxide or something in the, in the actual homeroom building. But this particular patient had depression, had a history already of substance abuse. So he, he's, uh, you know, he's ambitious right out of the gates at 15 years of age and not on any medications. This is where you start trying to figure out the diagnosis. And I actually, just by blind luck, ended up getting this guy right off the AMBO bay. So it was actually a lot of fun for myself, maybe not for him. The uh, blood pressure, 155 over 71, pulse rate 130, and his temperature was 39 degrees Celsius. Uh, pupils about 3 millimeters in reactive, dry mucosa. And the most prominent thing was he was perseverating, asking the same questions over and over again, almost as if he was concussed talked like he had a, a mouthful of uh, mothballs in his mouth, 
And actually, with that alone, I already knew the diagnosis. Do you guys? Toxidrome-wise? MDMA is a great thought, but not quite. But anticholinergic is uh, the better thought. MDMA could do it, and we'll get into that a little bit. But <clears throat> the uh, this guy actually was picking butterflies out in the air, so he had visual uh, hallucinations. The short-term memory loss is actually a big one. Uh, scopolamine and all these anticholinergics have incredible amnestic effects, and we'll go into a little bit what this patient has. So everything, of course, comes back normal, except he has a sinus tack. And I asked him to draw a clock. You, hopefully this isn't his best effort, you know, when he's uh, completely sober. I gave him antidote. Five minutes later, you know, he kind of has the 12 and 6. Eh, the 3 and 9 are a little off and almost makes a full circle. And after 15 minutes of antidotal therapy, this very well may be the best he can do in his homeroom. Um, so what did I give him? Physostigmine. It basically a cholinergic producing drug. Physostigmine is an uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, so it increases your synaptic concentration of acetylcholine. It crosses the blood-brain barrier, which is a big one, and it essentially reverses the central anticholinergic symptoms that you have. You know, neurologists will use uh, the drawing of the clock a lot for checking out left and right brain uh, functionality. Uh, you see this guy, it's almost like he completely lost his left side of his brain. But basically, the spatial relations is distorted with anticholinergic um, toxicity. And as you see, he got to six, and then I think he literally wrote all the other numbers on top of that, that one number right there. And I think that's seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve right there. And then, of course, after anecdotal therapy... He started getting better, and it's literally instantaneous. You, this is almost like Narcan to your opioids. And then finally, he was very definitive about his one. He's like, I'm putting the one right there. And then, of course, finally, 15 minutes after antidote, uh, got better. Why am I bringing this case to you is simply to bring up the toxidromes. I mean, one that, that we always uh, probably have flashbacks from medical school, uh, blind as a bat, red as a beet, mad as a hatter, dry as a bone, full as a flask, and hot as Hades. Now, what do these actually mean? You have blind as a bat, that actually means madriasis. Red as a beet is flushed. Uh, mad as a hatter is the hallucinations. Dry as a bone is the uh, dry skin. And full as a flask is, uh, you know, of course, urinary retention. And hot as Hades is the hyperthermia, but it is due to impaired heat dissipation. So different than what we're going to be talking about shortly. This, uh, the absolute opposite, the cholinergic toxidrome or crisis, is one that everyone should probably save. I'd be willing to bet that there's probably a single question that would be on either critical care, definitely toxicology and EM boards, is the cholinergic crisis. And specifically because it does involve your nerve agents, agents of mass destruction, um, but also involves organophosphates. If anybody works in a you know, farm area, rural area, you very well may see drugs or compounds that actually can cause the cholinergic crisis. And what you need, and I'm not a big fan of acronyms, but this is probably the best one, dumbbells. Diarrhea, urination, meiosis, bradycardia, bronchorrhea, em uh, emesis, lethargy, uh, lacrimation, and salivation. 
So all of this gastric emptying, uh, as well as what we call the killer bees, which is bradycardia, bronchorrhea, and bronchoconstriction. A lot of people remember sludge, and I'm just not a fan of a sludge because all it has is salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, and ga- gastric emptying. It never mentions the lethal part of the toxidrome, and no one's going to ever salivate to death, no one's going to lacrimate to death. But you have bronchorrhea, bradycardia, bronchoconstriction, and when you see a patient that has been poisoned by organophosphate, which is the one that I have seen, it is like the pulmonary edema patient where the foam is coming out of the uh, ET tube. I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen it either pericode or in other patients. That is the de- degree of bronchorrhea that you'll see in these organic, uh, organophosphate poisoned patients. Now, little history, uh, a little trivia. Jonathan Swift actually wrote Gulliver's Travels. Uh, you know, it's about the big giant with the people from Lilliput. Well, Jonathan Swift actually suffered Meniere's disease and actually took Jimson weed on a regular basis to combat the Meniere's disease. Well, the, so the story goes is that he actually wrote the children's book, uh, Gulliver's Travels, while hallucinating uh, from his anticholinergic high while he was eating his Jimson weed. So, and, and so much so that they actually call the hallucinations from the anticholinergic toxidrome Lilliputian hallucinations or micropsia. So that's the whole spatial distortion that we were talking about when you try to draw your clock. So this is the segue that we have going into ICU hyperthermia. Of course, uh, you know, everyone will start going through their pan culturing, assess for uh, sepsis, inflammatory causes, drug, uh, drug fever, etc. But you'll run into patients that the fever may be unexplained, and you start looking at the drug list or the history. You start looking at the neurologic findings, hopefully prior to intubation or paralysis, and look at those neurologic findings specifically. What are their motor dyskinesias, hypertonicity? There may be something there that starts making you think about what I call the HOTS. So these are the hyperthermic syndromes that you need to think of especially in a certain clinical context. Serotonin syndrome, you know, this is where it usually involves multiple serotonergic drugs, usually short-lived. You have malignant hyperthermia. Every anesthesiologist knows this one uh, like the back of their hand. This is an autosomal dominant genetic defect of the ryanodon receptor, and we'll get into that a little bit. It essentially occurs after the administration of inhaled anesthetics or uh, succinylcholine. And then finally, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is associated with anti-dopaminergic drugs like antipsychotics and is uh, much long, uh, very long-lasting and actually carries probably one of the more significant mortality rates, upwards of 10%. The reason I'm putting all three of these, and then we'll go into details, is the treatments for all three of these, as well as the presentations, all seem to overlap, and it's probably not the best way to treat each of these um, syndromes. All of these probably will end up in your ICU at some point in time in your career. Serotonin syndrome. Serotonin syndrome is a kind of a mismatch of more than one mechanism usually. It's not just one overdose. It can be the therapeutic misadventures of meperidine, which is serotonergic, then goes on a cough-cold remedy that's dextromethorphan, which is also serotonergic, and the patient was on an SSRI. And then for whatever reason, that kindling all of a sudden sets off a serotonin syndrome. What I was talking about there is 
So serotonin, I'm not going to kill anybody with molecular structures or anything right now, but tryptophan uh, gets converted over into serotonin at any point, either from the release of serotonin to the agonism at the receptor to the reuptake, you can increase your serotonin uh, with any one uh, number of these drugs. Tryptophan itself can increase it. Amphetamines, MDMA is a big serotonin release uh, drug. And then, of course, SSRIs block the reuptake of serotonin. It's usually more than one mechanism that gets hit that actually causes the serotonin syndrome. And how do they look? How many people think they, think they have seen or confirmed that they saw a serotonin syndrome? Raise your hand. All right. So, I mean, that's actually not too terribly uncommon. The, and what was the longest they stayed in the ICU for you guys? Um, it may be, usually it's a short-lived disease, unless there's some other complications or other problems. Agitation, diaphoresis, tachycardia, autonomic instability. Clonus is a big one and a differentiating factor from the other two hyperthermic syndromes, and tremor. And probably the, the board's question that everybody will see is what kind of criteria you're going to use to actually make the diagnosis of serotonin syndrome. There is no lab test, but Hunter's criteria is probably the best, most effective criteria that there is to uh, actually identify a serotonin, patient, a serotonin syndrome patient. Reported around 84% sensitivity and has been re-verified uh, my friend, Dr. Ed Boyer, has actually worked uh, long and hard with serotonin syndrome and, and published probably the landmark article in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, what oh, what uh, Hunter syndrome inc- uh, needs is basically you need a serotonergic agent plus any one of the following. Spontaneous clonus, inducible clonus plus agitation, or di- diaphoresis, ocular clonus plus agitation or diaphoresis, tremor plus hyperreflexia. And notice, only the last one does it actually bring up temperature. Serotonin syndrome does not have to be the sky-high 106, 107 temperature to confirm the diagnosis. You can actually be normothermic in these patients. Hypertonia plus temperature 38 degrees Celsius plus ocular clonus or inducible clonus. That is the only one, only one line that actually includes temperature. Probably a good thing to keep in the back of your mind, uh, especially when you're thinking about someone who's altered, that you don't necessarily have to have that hyperthermia. So how do you treat these patients? This is the part that's not terribly exciting. It's mostly supportive. They do get better relatively quickly within the first few days. You know, 24 to 72 hours, really, you should be able to get control of these people. The one thing that's an interesting thing to talk about is ciproheptidine. It's an antihistamine, but it actually has serotonergic blocking agents, uh, properties. And it has been hypothesized that perhaps you could try and use it. Now, the the counter to that is it's also anticholinergic. And do you really want to impair someone's heat dissipation in a serotonin syndrome patient? I don't know that you're really going to hurt anybody with ciproheptidine. I've tried it before. haven't really seen any incredible effect. Um, for the most part, you're going to make do with your supportive care and benzodiazepines when necessary. Um, But it's always brought up and uh, always worth mentioning. Malignant hyperthermia. Don't ask me why I showed the picture of the dead pig. I actually just kind of found it funny when I did my search on malignant hyperthermia. They they showed uh, different studies. 
and malignant hyperthermia is the one that is the most uh, defined disease entity out, out of these three. Uh, this is your standard uh, calcium being excreted by the sarcoplasmic reticulum going into your actin myosin filaments for your skeletal muscle, causing contraction, and then, of course, gets reuptake back into the SR. The genetic defect is right in the ryanodyne receptor so that you actually don't allow reuptake, and you end up increasing calcium here. When you increase the calcium, you have complete contraction. The, the classic story is the anesthesiologist uh, will be told by the surgeon, uh, give them more paralytic, they're tightening up. And then they gave more paralytic, and it's still not tightening up. Uh, suddenly the CO2 shoots up, temperature shoots up, and then they'll know exactly what has happened already, and that is uh, malignant hyperthermia. These patients do get up to 107 degrees, 106, very, very high temperatures, uh, and it's solely because of this increase in the intracellular calcium that has occurred. And, of course, the main treatment is dantrolene, which allows the calcium reuptake back into the SR. Once you're able to do that, it is the definitive treatment for these MH patients. Highly effective, and because of its effectiveness and because it is a hot syndrome, it has been, uh, dantrolene has been proposed to be used in all of the other hyperthermia syndromes. Unfortunately, the mechanisms are completely different. And that, the article I sent you is probably the biggest case report slash meta-analysis that exists with regards to neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is uh, the one that we're going to talk a little bit more about here today. It usually involves, it will involve an anti-dopaminergic uh, agent. Usually the antipsychotics that are older, so the Haldol, the Thorazines, those are the ones that were more implicated, had a higher incidence in those type of medications. The new atypicals have a lower incidence of NMS, although it has been reported in those as well. The biggest risk factors for NMS is previous NMS reaction, depot injections, the, the psych patients that receive depot injections of uh, Haldol, as well as increasing dose or escalating doses of antipsychotics. You can see how there's a lot of overlap. Hyperthermia usually just goes uh, sky high. You see elevated CPK, uh, mental status changes. The big difference, though, here is going to be this lead pipe rigidity. How many people have actually seen confirmed uh, a di uh, diagnosis of NMS in the, in the unit? So I see one, two, three, four. I'm actually surprised five, six. It's good. The, the incidence has actually decreased enough where I actually you know, have not had as many calls for NMS as I had in the past. The most pronounced piece really is uh, this lead pipe rigidity, which is almost like a Parkinsonian uh, you know, finding. The uh, most common drug used to treat NMS has been dantrolene. I just finished telling you that NMS, the main mechanism of action is the blocking of the dopamine receptors. I believe locus ceruleus and a couple other parts of the brain are mainly implicated. Dantrolene doesn't at least to our knowledge, have a defined CNS effect that comes anywhere near what the mechanism for neuroleptic malignant syndrome is. But because it is a hyperthermic syndrome with this lead pipe rigidity, which kind of seems like the rigidity and uh, skeletal muscle contraction that's seen with MH, 
many people, uh, it, you know, in fact, two hundred, you know, over two hundred patients in this case um, meta-analysis utilized uh, dantrolene in these patients. Uh, rollback basically looked in critical care 2007 and tried to standardize uh, certain metrics, what he called effectiveness rates, and as well as mortality, and summarized all the 271 cases of NMS in, in the literature, and then just stratified them uh, by effectiveness, and then here complete remission, and then finally mortality. Now, of course, this is a meta-analysis of singular case reports and case series. There are some obvious huge limitations to this paper, but we're never going to be able to study it. Uh, it's not going to be a case-controlled trial in a single hospital or even multi-hospital uh, system. This is probably the best that we're going to have, and the main takeaway message is here you see dantrolene monotherapy did seem to be effective, caused uh, remission, although about the same as with uh, nothing at all, as well as with other medications. And then the thing that people point to is this mortality rate of 16.2% with the administration of what uh, people believe is usually a uh, at least a helpful agent. When you try to control for acuity, which is difficult to do in these studies, uh, that's the big question is, are we really seeing an increase in mortality uh, it is interesting that the other three, 7.3, 8.9%, and 2.0% mortality rates in the other three uh, measures, dantrolene with an additive medication, other medication, and then only supportive therapy. But you still can't draw any conclusions. The one thing that you can honestly say is it's not an antidote, and it's not standard of care to give dantrolene. So, you know, wait for a second before you immediately add that drug in your next NMS patient. Now, if you have pure skeletal muscle contraction as one of the main problems with your NMS patient, then I can see, you know, you, you probably have at least a legitimate mechanism. You're trying to relax the skeletal muscle with the antrolene, and you can go ahead and administer. But it is not the antidote like it is with malignant hyperthermia. And then the remission rate uh, although it looked initially good for dantrolene, you'll notice they actually put it on a logarithmic scale for the odds ratios and actually showed that there was really no statistical difference between uh, dantrolene monotherapy and any of the other therapies for uh, NMS. So it, it kind of just shows that we don't have any definitive uh, evidence-based guidance for dantrolene. It is not wrong to hold back the dantrolene, or at least wait. And maybe there's some evidence to say that it could be harmful, although I really wouldn't uh, come to that conclusion with what we have right now. Now, there are two medications that do have a mechanism that would counteract the NMS mechanism of action, and those are dopaminergic agents, uh, such as bromocryptine and amantadine. And both of those have been anecdotally put out there. You know, it, it, as much as dantrolene is out there, bromocryptine is uh, you know, about a tenth less. There's just not a lot of evidence out there. You want to make sure you're cooling your patients, supportive care, watch the CK. They can get into rhabdo. And uh, benzodiazepines I would put in as my first-line agent, and dantrolene I would put a little bit lower. Uh, you're trying to get, make sure that the uh, skeletal muscle contraction uh, is not you know, becoming damaging to the patient itself. So... Uh, if you want to add on dantrolene, you know, it, I think it's completely acceptable. Uh, just 
recognize that you're not giving some sort of antidote on these patients. All right. Well, we're going to segue from the HOTS to prescription drug abuse. Uh, But more specifically, uh, one of the byproducts of prescription drug abuse is the uh, overdose of acetaminophen, which happens, I would say, probably in increasing incidence now because of the increased incidence in prescription drug abuse and combination pills. FDA has been trying to move towards getting rid of the Percocets and the Lortabs because solely because of the acetaminophen and the adverse effects of both people just inadvertently. Uh, I still remember my one, it was a, you know a innocent patient who went to the dentist, got Percocet, got the flu, took Theraflu, and then took Tylenol because she had a fever. So in all, she took over six grams of Tylenol within a one- to two-hour period of time and landed herself a three-day hospital admission. This is before we had IVAs, acetylcysteine. And it was complete innocent. Did not realize that Percocet and Theraflu all had acetaminophen and then finally took uh, acetaminophen. So uh, one aside, prescription drug abuse has now surpassed cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine combined as the number one uh, drug of abuse. Uh, Unfortunately, makes our prescriptions the most diverted and the biggest cause of prescription drug abuse. And I say that collectively. I mean, this is the pain clinics. This is, uh, you know, the emergency department, the hospital uh, across the board, something that we're all going to be dealing with and that you guys have been seeing the consequences of in the unit probably on a daily basis. Opioid overdose uh, overdose and consequences of the coma. Uh, I won't bore you with any of those. I think uh, everyone is pretty – I always – tell the EM residents that everyone here will graduate with a subspecialty tox fellowship in opioid abuse because the uh, heroin and and now you add uh, the prescription drug abuse as well as the methadone, every single one of them will uh, go through, uh, you know, each shift with seeing that on a regular basis. Although I will say there was one neat adverse effect of opioids, I'll just mention it, uh, has anyone seen opioid-induced, you know, during overdose, actual deafness? Uh, I've had two patients now. It's the only reason I bring it up. We had a methadone patient who came back and had an aspiration pneumonia and was flat-out deaf, could not hear a thing. Um, no other medications that could have been uh, there. And sure enough, in the literature, it is a phenomenon that has occurred with severe opioid, toxic, uh, o- opioid overdose. So just keep in mind if you end up losing, you know, a guy who actually keeps telling you what, what, he might be actually telling the truth. So real briefly, acetaminophen uh, overdoses. The first 24 hours, you should never see a, an acetaminophen pa- uh, overdose patient. In fact, I would refuse to see a patient if I was in the unit who has overdosed within the first 24 hours because it is too early. You don't know if they're sick or not. They haven't had a chance to get sick. Phase two is usually the time that you may start getting the phone calls, somewhere between the 18 to 3-day range from the time of ingestion. AST and ALT will go up. INR starts going up. Bilirubin goes up. Phase three is where they should be in the unit by now. Hepatic encephalopathy, uh, renal insufficiency, acute kidney injury. And then finally, phase four is your liver dies phase. Either you get better and survive or die uh, within the uh, four days to two-week range. Mortality, if you do absolutely nothing for an acetaminophen overdose, is about 5%. And liver injury for this particular ingestion is defined as an AST greater than 1,000. All right? Another kind of good cutoff, you know, if, if someone doesn't have an AST of greater than 1,000, really doesn't belong in the unit. 
Uh, renal failure, coinciding renal failure occurs in about 10% of these cases, and children do appear to be less sensitive. And that's solely because the children don't have a cytochrome P450 system that's very well developed. This is your toxic metabolite, NAPKI. This is your acetaminophen. And then, of course, acetylcysteine basically detoxifies NAPKI um, through this pathway. So I always promise to try and keep the molecular structures out, so I just kept the, the words there for everybody. And this is the part that's also hel uh, helpful and relevant to the critical care uh, specialty. The antidote is 100% effective in patients who ad uh, were administered antidote within 8 to 10 hours from the time of ingestion. It doesn't matter how much it was. It is about as good an antidote as there exists. So if they are calling to admit a person to the unit within those first 8 to 10 hours, it, that should be a there never should be a patient in, on the you know unless there's some other factors obviously a pure acetaminophen overdose there's really no reason for that patient to be in the unit that person is going to get better uh, no benefit to giving it even earlier but basically if it's given within that time window for the first ten hours you're going to do, uh, that patient is going to do well and it's never too late to actually start the therapy and this graph which is the landmark article by Smilkstein New England Journal of Medicine 1988 shows, I mean, you don't even see AST bumps. This is your AST greater than 1,000, so hepatotoxic patients just almost didn't occur at all in the eight-hour range. And then you start seeing, uh, you know, some with, uh, I think the asterisk there means that there was an actual uh, uh, death. That death actually occurred at the 12-hour mark uh, and uh, some over here. Actually, that wasn't the death one. Sorry. But you see it increase as time goes on, and uh, that eight-hour mark really does hold true. Everyone knows the King's College criteria. Uh, if you live in New York City, they usually call it the King's County criteria, but uh, that's usually a misnomer. The uh, pH it was one that was initially come up 7.3 after volume resuscitation. Uh, factor 8 and uh, 5 ratio is no longer really used. And then a combination of your three parameters, stage 3 or 4 hepatic encephalopathy, PT, this was done before INR actually came up, uh, INR, and now INR greater than 6 is what is utilized, and then a creatinine above 3.3. A couple new developments in from 2000 to tw uh, 2010 are both lactate and phosphate. Lactate, as you can see here in these uh, survival graphs, uh, your non-survivals are over here on the far left, and uh, your, your uh, survivors after an early admission, and they receive somewhere between 1 to 2 liters of resuscitation, and pretty much, uh, you know, your survivors had lactates as high as about 3 to 3.3 and very few deaths. And then over here, after 12 hours of resuscitation, you see the lactate go down a little bit more and you, uh, you see the survival graph go down there. There is some overlap, so it's not a perfect test. But uh, we started coalescing around a couple cutoffs with regards to lactate and which patients are going to need liver transplant. Phosphate, I think, has the neatest mechanism. You have regenerating liver that accumulates um, phosphate, essentially. If you think about glycogen, it has a bunch of little phosphates all on top of that molecule. So if a liver is actually healing, then the phosphate is going to get scavenged by the liver, and you actually see low phosphate in a healing liver. If you see a liver that's actually damaged beyond repair, then it's no longer trying to scavenge the phosphate, and the phosphate goes up. And that was the theory. Well, it really did play out, and this is probably the best scattergram that I've seen. 
that actually shows you know, there was no toxicity. Patients with hepatotoxicity, you see the phosphates kind of coalescing around a lower mean, hepatic encephalopathy, and then finally death. Uh, these patients all started with lack, uh, phosphates that were much higher. Again, with a little overlap, no test is 100%. You know you've made it as a clinical rule if you're an mdcalc.com. That's my personal saying. This is uh, essentially the mdcalc.com uh, uh, scoring system where they put down the, the lactate. They basically combined the King's College with lactate and phosphate from the, uh, those studies. And this is actually not bad at all. This is a pretty good, fast, easy way to determine if this patient is going to essentially require liver transplant uh, is going to do extraordinarily poorly if you really need to start amping up your, your treatments and as well as involving hepatology even earlier. Any questions about that? It's important to know where it came from and what to use. Very specific cutoffs. You know, the, the lactate there was, you know, 12 hours from, you know, greater than 3, uh, 12 hours with active fluid resuscitation, and then 3.5, 4 hours after early fluid resuscitation. These all have been adapted and uh, uh, kind of reconfirmed uh, with uh, recent studies. All right, this last one is probably the interesting, the cutting edge uh, uh, treatment that I think is going to be seen more often in the ICUs as well as in the emergency department, mainly because we're beginning to realize that it has extra beneficial effects that are, don't just relate to toxicology. But right now, we're going to talk about the hemodynamic unstable poisoning. This is a broad, broad category. We're not even going to talk about one single agent. We've tried fluids, pressors, hyperinsulinemia, euglycemia, glucagon, calcium, aortic balloon pump, dialysis, pacemaker. You've gone through the entire gamut. I remember uh, uh, Dr. Jack Perkins. I saw, took care of a calcium channel blocker overdose with him, and we literally went through every single one of these uh, treatments. This is before lipid emulsion therapy uh, existed, and I wish you know, we could have like, had a replay or a redo, kind of like Groundhog Day, of having that patient come in again so we could have seen if uh, lipid emulsion therapy would have worked. Serendipity was actually defined uh, by Dr. Guy Weinberg as the accidental discovery of something fortunate, especially when you're looking for something else entirely. And that's basically what happened to Dr. Weinberg, who was kind of the father of uh, lipid emulsion therapy, or at least one of the bigger promoters of, uh, I shouldn't say father of lipid emulsion, but he, he really uh, laid a lot of the groundwork. He actually had a patient with carnitine, deficient, uh, carnitine deficiency who developed rapid onset of arrhythmias associated with bupivacaine. He thought, well, carnitine is, uh, facilitates the transport of fatty acids, major supplier of cardiac energy. So his theory was lipid infusion might inhibit the carnitine-mediated fatty acid uptake. And that is what led to worsening bupivacaine uh, arrhythmias and toxicity. So give lipid emulsion, and it will actually make bupivacaine worse. Well, the direct opposite was what he found. It actually showed that the rat models were found to benefit tremendously from the lipid emulsion therapy. And what I'm going to show you here is the uh, rhythm strip of uh, one of these rat studies. So bupivacaine bolus is administered, and as you might expect, uh, you know, these bupivacaine, uh, these other, they're used in beer blocks and other big regional blocks. Uh, you start seeing the uh, deterioration of the rhythm, 
And uh, one of my more entertaining parts is coming up here, not the asystole, but uh, you'll see them go on to complete asystole pretty quickly. And then, wait for it, CPR started. Someone's actually banging on this rat's chest. I love it. So they're actually uh, doing active CPR on the rat and uh, until they finally see there's no independent rhythm, uh, complete asystole has uh, been achieved in this uh, rat model. Then they'll begin the administration of the intralipid or the lipid bolus. That's the first one. And then they give the continuing CPR. Those are the CPR spikes. And beginning to see some stuff come back. I promise this is the same rat. And they'll give a second bolus here in just a second. There you go. And you just start seeing the EKG come back. And it, you'll see it essentially revert to a complete normal uh, pre-test or a pre-experiment uh, rat EKG. And they, and they actually started an infusion there as well. So pretty impressive resuscitation of a rat. And what we have seen in the patients, anecdotally now, now, if you ask an anesthesiologist, this is something that they have known and used, uh, I don't know if I could say years upon years, but they have their intralipid box, you know, set, you know, within the OR so that if they're doing a beer block or some other kind of high-volume local anesthetic uh, block and they should get, get an inadvertent uh, vascular injection or... You know, maybe they let down the cuff too quickly, or someone is just particularly sensitive to it. They are able to administer uh, the I call it intralipid. That's the trade name, but it's essentially a 20% lipid emulsion therapy that we actually use and have in TPN on a daily basis. So everybody has it. There's no, uh, it, it's not some sort of highly specialized drug. The um, it has been used in that arena now for quite some time, and it is only recently that we have begun to use it in medical toxicology. American College of Medical Toxicology actually came out with a position statement saying there's no standard of care with regards to intralipid therapy. Anecdotal uh, cases have been extraordinarily promising, almost like what you just saw with the rat. So they're administering intralipid, and all of a sudden someone that was asystolic is all of a sudden coming back to normal sinus rhythm. Highly, highly impressive. It, they actually broadened the use, and a lot of poison centers have now begun to run with it that it is reasonable to administer a hemodynamic unstable poison patient intralipid, especially if the drug is known to be uh, lipophilic. But essentially, any hemodynamically unstable poison patient, they're saying it is reasonable to administer lipid emulsion therapy. It's a safe drug. Uh, there's really very little downside. Some of your laboratory tests will be fouled up, hematocrit, glucose, triglycerides will be thrown off, but it's a relatively safe drug. How does it work? And that's the article, the third article that I sent to you guys. We used to think that it's just a lipid sink type theory where like you're producing micelles around a lipophilic drug and you're basically pulling drug off a receptor. That may or may not be happening, and we haven't actually been able to prove that one too well. 
the article I sent you as actually one of the first few articles that's showing that there is probably another mechanism involved with the regards to lipid emulsion therapy. Fetoplace, in real simple study, nothing, you know, they, they are measuring aortic pressures in a rat, which is probably a little bit of a challenge, but essentially gave saline and equivolume of lipid emulsion and just saw a these are not poisoned rats. These are not pats, rats that have any kind of uh, you know other medication on board, and saw a increase in your mean arterial pressure and your aortic pressures across the board, kind of showing that there is. And it wasn't. It was also the one part that they're missing is they didn't control for the osm load, which is going to probably be the next study. But if that actually shows that you know equiosmolar uh, compound is not able to cause the blood pressure jump that lipid emulsion therapy has caused, then we know it's a signal transduction. There's something else going on with regards to energy distribution or something is going on with signaling to the heart that uh, the blood pressure is able to come back up. The adult evidence has been um, anecdotal but growing. Everyone believes that it helps and has been effective, so they've actually removed a lot of the animal studies for lipid emulsion therapy because they realize that it, do it does work. Uh, it's been used in peds, and it's been used, you know, it, in a variety of medications, amitriptyline, deltaizam, bupropion. So people are trying it, and you can definitely see both an increase in blood pressure and improvement in rhythm uh, for these patients. Your general uh, dose is 1.5 mLs per kilogram, and you can repeat that bolus dose in about 15 minutes, and then you can start an infusion after that especially if you see an initial bump up in blood pressure, which then deteriorates, then I would start the infusion after that. And I would literally give this to any patient. I wouldn't even necessarily worry about lipophilic drugs or not lipophilic drugs. If it's a hemodynamically unstable poison patient, if you think that drugs in some way, shape, or form are contributing to the patient's uh, uh, instability, I would consider lipid emulsion therapy. So in conclusion... Remember that dantrolene does not treat all hyperthermic syndromes. In fact, it really only treats one. It treats the symptoms of another. Acetaminophen-induced hepatotoxicity, take into consideration your phosphate and your lactates uh, to help in your prognosis and when to pull in the transplant team. And finally, uh, all of you, I'm sure, have either heard of and I think will probably be uh, using more lipid emulsion therapy down the line because of its positive inotropic effects as well as uh, it's lipid sink theory to help you with hemodynamic uh, unstable poison patients. So with that, open up the door to any questions. Anybody have any questions about the three concepts we talked about? No? All right, guys, thanks a lot. A couple questions. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah. First of all, that was great. Um, so it... We use a decent amount of antipsychotics in the ICU for sedative reasons. And uh, do you see, or have you seen a dose-dependent relationship with uh, antipsychotics with the development of NMS, or is it purely just bad luck, doesn't matter the dose, doesn't matter typical, atypical, whatever? So definitely certain medications, you know, the, the old ones like Haldol and Thorazine are more prone to it. It is not a dose-response effect. It's completely idiosyncratic. Some people you, you'll use, and you probably have used, 
30, 40 milligrams of Haldol and didn't see any, you know, uh, untoward effects. It's, uh, it's idiosyncratic. And, and uh, can it happen, let's say, if somebody's on a long-term kind of outpatient antipsychotic, yeah. can happen a year after use? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's, I mean, it doesn't matter if you started on day one or day 1,000. It can happen any time during that course. And on the other hand, let's say malignant hyperthermia, are you pretty much, would you pretty much only see that in the OR or even afterwards? I mean, do you see a delayed presentation ever? No, with that? no, it's right. pretty immediate. So okay. malignant hyperthermia is not one that you'll, you'll probably see the consequences of it as it gets to the unit. You probably won't see the initial presentation. Okay. And then a couple more. <laughs> Just keep firing it. Uh, for lipid emulsion therapy, uh, do you, is there any benefit to, uh, of propofol? Because we're using that more and more, it's a lipid-based yeah. uh, medication. And um, how any idea how much lipid is, is you know, levels of lipid um, contained in that versus, you know, yeah. the... actually uh, looked that one up. The the volume of actual intralipid just doesn't compare to just pure twenty percent lipid emulsion therapy. It, it is lipid-based. Um, and you're talking about also putting in a drug that, in and of itself, uh, can also induce hypotension. So. Um, you know, it's not a surrogate. Okay. And finally, can you touch on, in terms of acetaminophen, acetaminophen overdose, uh, how to, like, what, what kind of value to assign to the serum levels in a chronic uh, toxicity? And is there any, you know, we're dealing with the patient, you know, if, however many hours after the initial ingestion, is there any value to graphing it? Right. So the uh, what we were talking about were single acute ingestions. When you talk about chronic ingestions, uh, you have to start looking at the delayed effects. So the AST, ALT, the liver uh, function, functionality, so INR, and you take those into account probably more so than the level itself. You're not able to graph a chronic ingestion with the level that it has. But if you see acetaminophen present and you start to, you already see AST greater than a thousand, uh, you start seeing INR, you know, INR up in the six range. Then you know that this is, you know, may have been chronic, and and the wheels are beginning to fall off. You try to relate it to the acute ingestion, but really the chronic ingestion is a different animal. And is it dependent on the dose? Yeah. So, uh, the question that she asked was specifically talking about geodon, seroquel, and some other antipsychotics. The QT prolonging uh, effects. I think the first question is. Uh, you know, how often or when do you check the EKG? And, you know, do you need to do screening EKGs? And, you know, at what point do you worry about the QT interval? And we can answer all of those questions almost together. The QT phenomenon usually is not one single drug. So you have to weigh the risk. If it's, you know, uh, one patient and that's on one single QT prolonging drug, and it's not a, a drug that is known to do it in a, in a high you know, uh, w- with a high propensity, like Sotolol, you're going to check it. Um, Sotolol is, you know, a, a beta blocker that actually can prolong the QT, cause the torsades rather uh, chronically. But uh, Seroquel and, you know, some of the others that you were talking about, Geodon, they do it, but it, it's not like, you know, one of the big danger ones. But if it is one on top of another five QT prolonging drugs, I probably would do an EKG. I do not do screening EKGs on every person that I give Geodon or Seroquel to. Um, 
it, for that matter, I, 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 I don't even do it necessarily with droperidol unless someone gets on my back about it because, you know, I, I've seen the data. I, I can assess the risk. If the person is on more than one drug, I'll do it. If the person is on high doses of a particular drug, even single agent, methadone is a classic one. You know, I, we've seen torsades with, uh, you know, high-dose methadone. Uh, those are patients that I'd be worried about. And then when do you get worried about it? The moment that QT interval goes above 500 is when I say that's my automatic trigger. I think it's about 20% that will proceed on to torsade, 600 milliseconds. It gets upwards of 50 to 50 to 60% chance for torsades. So no screening uh, EKGs. I don't think that's necessary. Uh, I think you can be specific to your case, you know, and the patient assess the risk and go from there. Females have a propensity for a long QT interval. Uh, so knowing that beforehand is also important. I should add that. So if they started off at 450 or 500 and you're adding a QT prolonging drug, I'd probably check as well. Good question. Oh. Oh, great. Thanks, guys. All great questions. Take care. Thank you, sir. All right, man. I'll need it this time. <laughs> <laughs>